When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Salzburg, birthplace of Mozart. Next to the Vienna, it is the principal attraction in Austria. The guidebooks point out that it is 1,400 feet above sea level and that it nestles at the foot of three wooded hills and extends on both sides of the river Salzach. In the spring, the river is swift-flowing, fed by the melting snows from the mountains that dominate the city. The guidebooks go on to say that thanks to its setting, ancient European trade routes pass through it and today can be reached easily by road, rail, and air. But 40 years ago, it was reached with considerable difficulty by units of the U.S. 7th Army, and a route lay across the plains of France, Alsace-Lorraine, the Siegfried Line, through the Black Forest, on through the shattered cities of Heidelberg and Munich, and the liberation of Dachau, the concentration camp, then on to the liberation of Salzburg itself on May the 5th, the last important town to fall to the Allies before General Kesselring surrendered on May the 7th. VE Day was declared officially on May the 8th. We are here now to mark the commemoration of that day. And right across the continent of Europe, from the beaches of Normandy, the army left in its wake a land devastated by battle, towns and villages reduced to rubble of bricks and stones, burnt out trucks and tanks, blasted apple orchards with the bark peeled from the tree trunks and fields churned up by the half-tracks that had recently been ploughed. And occasionally half a house still stood, exposing a staircase going nowhere, pictures hanging askew in the walls and logs in the grate. The elegant prose of the tourist brochures is now justified as the streets are filled with sightseers. Japanese families festooned with cameras, rub shoulders with Germans and English, Italians and Spanish fill the streets and squares with their excited laughter. They have come to visit one of the most beautiful medieval cities in Europe. But there are others who have come here with a different purpose. They have come to remember. And this evening, there is an official reception given by Andrew G. Thomas, Consul General of the United States, to mark the occasion of the liberation, with a guest of honour, Dr. Wilfred Haslauer, Governor of Salzburg. Hello, Ms. Minister Councillor Bach, Deputy Mayor Spookleitner of Bacher, Councillor General Miller, colleagues from the Councillor Corps, Rector Designate Dolphin, Superintendent Schmidt. In walking around the Getradegasse along the river, it's difficult to understand 
how much destruction there was in the city 40 years ago. The 15th Air Force, based in Italy, carried out some 15 bombing raids against the city, beginning in October 1944 and lasting until shortly before the entry of U.S. forces in May of 1945. The first raid was on October the 16th, and it destroyed a large portion of the old city. A bomb even destroyed the dome of the cathedral. Some 3,000 of 7,000 buildings were damaged in the air attacks. Some 15,000 people were left homeless, and over 500 men, women, and children were killed in these attacks. So the scars of the war were definitely visible here in Salzburg. For a while it appeared as though the damage would be even greater because it was not known whether the city would be surrendered without a fight or not as U.S. forces were advancing through Bavaria. The German commander, Colonel Lepperdinger, decided, however, to surrender the city without a battle and he announced this to the Salzburg population in a radio broadcast in the morning of the 4th of May. Hier spricht Oberst Lepperdinger. Vor einigen Wochen habe ich das Amt des Kampfkommandanten in Salzburg übernommen. Ich habe schon damals gewusst, dass ich einer schicksalhaften Stunde... This is Colonel Lepperdinger. A couple of weeks ago, I took over the post of commander of Salzburg. At that time, I knew I was approaching an historical hour. It is in my heart to avoid needless destruction of the population. All my efforts are in that direction, to persuade all authorities concerned of the senselessness to defend Salzburg. Yesterday in the afternoon, I had the permission of General Ringel and a girl I tears to protect the city by all means against assault. But yesterday evening, General Van Bork took over control and ordered me to defend the city. Although he did not know the military situation of the city and its 80,000 inhabitants and the 7,000 injured. This command is insanity. Therefore, I have decided to disobey this order since the Führer, to whom I gave my oath, is dead. I declare that the last free German city, an open city, and offer to the Americans my surrender. Ich habe mich daher entschlossen, diesen Befehl, an den mich seit dem Tode des Führers kein Eid mehr bindet, nicht auszuführen. Ich erkläre die letzte freie deutsche Stadt zur offenen Stadt und biete den Amerikanern die Übergabe an. The people of Salzburg now knew that Hitler was dead. The announcement came from Admiral Dönitz. He announced that the Führer Adolf Hitler had died in his command post, fighting the forces of Bolshevism down to his last breath. Aus dem Führerhauptquartier wird gemeldet, dass unser Führer Adolf Hitler heute Nachmittag in seinem Befehlsstand in der Reichskanzlei bis zum letzten Atemzuge gegen den Bolschewismus kämpfend für Deutschland gefallen ist. Salzburg was in utter chaos of the liberation and it grew worse daily as more troops moved in. Frontline units were billeted in the city itself. They roamed the streets, helmeted and armed. 
hardly believing that it was all over, that they had survived. German soldiers, unarmed and without the helmets, walked wearily at first. Victims of Dachau, those who could still walk, stood around in bewildered freedom, clad in their striped pajama-like garb. Freed slave laborers, men and women, mostly slabs, formed circles and danced in the streets. That is, the men danced in huge circles while the women looked on in delight, and the citizens of Salzburg looked dazed. Food was the problem, and the U.S. Army assumed the task of feeding the multitude. There is no food shortage today. Now it is early morning and the city prepares to celebrate. Waiters are spreading white linen tablecloths on the tables of the cafes outdoors. I'm now in the office of Frau Renata Hochmann, who is an editor of the publishing company. During the war, she was here in Salzburg during the German occupation, and also here when the American army marched in. And I think on the 4th of, 4th of May the Americans yes. came in, and we were in the cellar the night before, and it was very funny because all the Nazis from the neighborhood had huge packages with food with them, <laughs> and, and <laughs> we were very scared, and we had nothing practically. And then the Americans came in, and they, they went in our part of the town at least, they searched every house, yes. but uh, I, since I spoke English quite well, I was Indeed able to immediately uh, to interpret. And uh, so from our house, they, um, the ones who the Nazis had to leave the, part, the apartments and the others could stay, but we had to take American soldiers in one room, Ability, yes, in, in part of the house. Where, and uh, but I must say that particularly the first ones behaved very well, and, and it was quite funny. And uh, anyway, we were so lucky, you know, and, and uh, we sort of felt I, I can't describe it. I must say on the whole that you know this whole uh, time was a time I uh, I spoke with other people about it the other day too. So full of hope that uh, never again. I've experienced something like that because you really had the feeling now every you know it, there must be a better world coming. Of course, it never came really, but in in the sense of the because life is life. But I mean, you had the feeling now you are free from from a burden and uh, something wonderful will happen. You know, the future is open, everything is wonderful, and uh, I must say, although we had in. Uh, in a way, we had less to eat the first time uh, because uh, the ration, rationing system sort of... Broke down. Uh, I can't say broke down, but there was less because of the whole, the organizations. It was a very difficult It was difficult. I mean, it can, I can't say it broke down, but it was, of course, the whole uh, organization and the whole structure sort of uh, had to be built up anew. And uh, in the first time we had very little to eat uh, and uh, it was quite hard I must say it was hard but one didn't it didn't matter in a way yeah, you of course must have been delighted to get rid of the German occupation uh, well the, the it wasn't really an occupation in a sense because it was everything was was German anyway you know yes. I think uh, the and besides most of the Austrians frankly were very happy about it anyway I see. Uh, until the very end uh, when they saw you know it didn't work so well they got tired of the whole thing. So around noon, we had 
American soldiers walking in the streets of Salzburg. I understand that a few hours later, the Austrian flag was flying again on the Hohen Salzburg. This was the first time that the flag, the Austrian flag, had flown there since the Anschluss of March 1938, when the Wehrmacht came across the border and swallowed up Austria. At that point began a 10-year American occupation of our zone of Austria. The first forces in town were led by the 3rd Infantry Division. Shortly later, these forces were relieved by the 24th Infantry Division, the famous Rainbow Division, which was commanded by Major General Harry J. Collins. And I'm very pleased that Mrs. Collins is with us this afternoon. The first American troops arrived. Of course, I, I didn't meet anybody, and I w they weren't introduced to me, so I couldn't speak with them. But um, we were rather glad that the, the whole thing was over and the bombing was over, and we were only feeling sorry for the uh, relatives of the deceased, for the wounded, and for people still in the lazaret, and for the crippled, both on both sides. And uh, then we saw, when I say we, I mean mother and I, and we both uh, saw the first Americans and we were glad that they didn't le look battle fatigued and uh, looked uh, well fed and, and uh, rather nice. And they were not sort of, we didn't see any hatred or any ill feelings toward the civilian population. And uh, I was very glad of that. Although I had no chance to speak with them, I saw when we were standing in line for our food store, we were allowed two hours a day to get our food, to see them and see how nice they were to the civilians. And that delighted me very much. The occupation was a mixed blessing. An occupation is, of course, difficult for both the occupiers as well as the occupied. And one of the first things that the American forces had to do was to force some Salzburgers out of their homes and residences to make room for the American forces. So I'm afraid the occupation got off to a very, very bad start. I hope that things improved. I know that they did to a certain extent because the forces tried quickly to see to the needs of the population, their health needs, their need for food, shelter later on in the winter, the need to reinstitute some political institutions. And generally, I think, on balance, the occupation uh, was not all that bad. At that time, Mrs. Collins became the intermediary between the military government under General Collins and the civilian government. I don't think there were any problems, but the civilian forces sort of got a little embarrassed because there, there was nothing they could do except beg for something. They had no fuel, they had no food, they had no, they just had nothing. And the, the same with the archbishop, you know, they had his palace full of DPs and he didn't know where to put them, what to do. And so always came, problems came up, you know. And I don't think there were any, any problems that one didn't do what the other wanted or were against uh, the requests. But there were just so many, and, and 
of course, the Austrian government didn't always can't, wanted to go to the head of the outfit, which was General Collins. Same thing, the military government, when there was something where they didn't know what in the devil, devil to do, they didn't want to go to Landeshauptmann. So they rather came to me and said, couldn't we sort of, couldn't you sort of straighten this out a little bit in between, talk with one side nicely and then with the other one? <laughs> I was always in between, between two chairs on the, on the ground. But uh, we could straighten out a lot of things, a lot of things by not always going to the head of the affair. I suppose food was one of the biggest problems, which you think? Food and fuel. I'm afraid fuel was just as bad as, as, as food. And all so about the... There were displaced persons wandering around yeah. from the camps, yeah. from the slave labor yeah. camps. There were German soldiers still on the streets yeah. in uniform. No, no, I don't recall that. Uh, maybe in the first time, you know, but then when I think the general was here in the 42nd Rainbow Division, the, they were mostly discharged. They were asked to go to a DP, to a, a prison of war camp and uh, get their papers in, and then they were discharged from there. Now, the DPs, that was another question. You see, there were many who did not what want to go back. A DP is a displaced person, yeah, displaced isn't it? displaced persons. Yes. There were many Romanians and um, some Yugoslavs, not many, but uh, many people to go back to the East, they didn't want to go. So they were in the middle. So what did they do? The Austrian government said, well, you've got to be sent home. The military said, well, we, we, we can't just keep you here if the Austrians don't. And there, was, and there were many, especially Germans, who married Austrian into Austrian families. I have some friends girlfriends who went to high school with me and they just kept coming and said well, for heaven's sakes Irene can't you do something that my husband and the children will not be sent to to uh, Germany back to Germany they want to be here I'm with Frank Davis who has come to visit Salzburg again he visited during the second world war shortly after when he was a GI with the 102nd infantry division Frank tell me about the time you were in the army Norm, I was with the 102nd Infantry Division during World War II, and I was wounded up near Aachen, and as part of my rest and recuperation, I was fortunate in being able to visit uh, Salzburg, a very uh, beautiful city, and it was just um, a great being here. Uh, we enjoyed it uh, very much, especially after some of the uh, better uh, fighting we had around Aachen and uh, on our drive towards the Ruhr uh, River. Yes, it was extremely uh, uh, rough uh, to all of us due to the fact uh, we were fighting uh, quite a bit in the uh, bitter cold. Uh, you weren't in the Battle of the Bulge then, Frank? No, I was not in the Battle of the Bulge, but I was in the uh, 53rd General Hospital uh, when the... Uh, men from the Battle of the Bulge, those fortunate uh, ones that did live, were flown direct from the front in C-47s back to our uh, landing strip in the Malvern Hills of uh, England. While the GIs were forcing their way across Europe, 
the citizens of Salzburg were continuing to live under the Nazi rule, which they had done since 1938. Professor Kaufmann, an 85-year-old painter who had no sympathy with the Nazis, lived through this time. I was in continuous danger because I couldn't, I couldn't shut my mouth entirely. <laughs> should keep my opinion quite for myself. And when graved for for exchange of ideas with friends who thought the same. And that was very, very dangerous, particularly as we always uh, tried and found ways to listen to BBC, to have news from the other side. This is London calling. Was there a strong anti-Nazi movement here in Salzburg? It was restricted to a certain elite, to, to some people. There were different categories. Uh, there were the enthusiastic, misled idealists. There were opportunists. There were narrow-minded bourgeois who felt power now bestowed on them by the authorities. For instance, as a little man who was trodden on by his superiors, suddenly he turned out to be an illegal, they will say the an illegal Nazi, one who had joined the party before it was even permitted, and he had power over his former oppressors or his superiors. It was a trick to give very many people this feeling of power over life and death of fellow, fellow citizens. Was there any overt activity on the part of the anti-Nazis? Did they indulge in any sabotage here? Um, some had the chance. For instance, I know of cases of sabotage by railway people towards the end of the war, particularly. It was very difficult because too many lost their heads by being uh, detected. And so I know, for instance, that one simple man who was an anti-Nazi and who lived in retirement uh, near a lake in his little chalet he listened to BBC and it was discovered somehow he was betrayed as, uh, and he lost his head he was beheaded for it beheaded? Yes. literally beheaded? yes were you aware that Dachau concentration camp existed it isn't far from here well the uh, the Dachau was known because some of my friends were there and, and people whom we, we knew were there. And, but we didn't, it was very difficult to, to, uh, hear, to get information from those who came from the camp because they were warned, if you 
tell what what you had experienced here or seen here to people, to the public. You will come back soon and and never leave it again. <laughs> Camp. So it was difficult there, but their silence was quite information enough. Besides, we. As I said, we listened to BBC and to other broadcasts from abroad, and there were still those who wanted to know what really is happening. They could get their information. Frau Buchmann also knew about the concentration camps. The funny thing was that everything was so much undercover, and uh, people were afraid to speak about it, you know. Naturally. That even I... I For instance, we had uh, friends and relatives who were in Dachau, but they wouldn't even speak in that to their family about it. Because when they came back, which was a question anyway whether they came back, they were uh, uh, threatened to... to uh, they, they were under heavy uh, pressure that they shouldn't speak about it to anybody. You of know? course. When, so when the Third Army, United States Army, came in, how did the population... How did you feel... Well, I was very, very happy because, as I said, we had trouble, and and uh, I and, and my friends and my family was really it was one of the best days we ever had. You Were know. you living in the city here? I was time? living in the city. Can you remember what it was like on May the fifth, sixth, seventh, the first yes, week? Yes, very well. I can well to begin with. I was uh, forced to work in a factory out of town in a suburb yes. the last month. And there, there it was sort of funny already because there were lots of students who couldn't study anymore. There were people from the theater because everything was closed. And uh, there were some uh, Nazis there who were to supervise the thing. And the Nazis got very frightened at the end and tried to make friends with the other group. And uh, then uh, the whole thing turned into a farce more or less because uh, they ran out of material. We, we did something for airplanes, something apart, uh, little something for the navigation, yes. and they didn't have airplanes and, and 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 material anyway. But in the last end, they dismissed the workers and kept the ones who were forced to work, you know, just for the fun of it. And uh, at that time, of course, there were were. Uh, A lot, there was a flea alarm every day. Yes, you know, fire alarm. Uh, yes. Fire alarm. And uh, this place was very close to the Untersberg, and we used to go to the to the uh, into the mountains yes. there. Uh, and uh, I remember the first of May, we had to work, and there was another alarm, and it was terribly cold. And there was a fact there's a factory ne nearby uh, for cement. You know what's amazing? Yes, indeed I do. And uh, they had water reservoirs inside of the mountain, and it was so cold that we were all, you know, almost freezing. And I said, now we go home and, and won't return. We don't give a damn whether, sure. whether we are forced or not, because this would be the end anyway. Another person with vivid experiences of that period is George Steinitz, who was only seven and a half years of age at the time. He learned his English through an Irish governess. The old lady that was uh, spoke English, and we thought this was uh, a way to communicate with her. She wasn't able to speak German. Uh, it, it didn't occur to me what a language really was uh, until uh, one day I saw two, turned out to be uh, prisoners of war that worked in the street, guarded by two, two German uh, uh, 
soldiers. And I, all of a sudden I heard that language and, and figured out it must be a little bit more than this funny way of communicating with the old lady. And I walked up to them and uh, said, are you English? And they uh, said, yes, uh, we are. And, and silly enough, I, I said, uh, it's pretty dangerous to be here as an Englishman uh, before they could answer anything. As far as I remember, they laughed. Uh, the guards chased me away. And my mother got a mean letter a couple of days later from the party officials of the village stating that Hitler said the world's important, most important language is German and your children need not learn English. I was in the second grade uh, grammar school and we had the, the last year we had bomb raids about every day. For us it was a great adventure. Um, it was practically a master plan between the British American and us against the teacher because every time we had a bomb raid uh, school was over of course and if it was a little bit overcast and the clouds were hanging too low there was no bomb raid to be expected then we were almost angry that nothing happened until of course bomb raids got a little bit closer and we saw what what happened in it and I remember uh, one instance that we got the alarm too late ran home and uh, more or less got into the bomb raid on the way home um, jumped into the ditch and wetted our pants. You know, we were no heroes, and and uh, saw a little bit of the destruction. Then, of course, it, uh, you all of a sudden realized what war really was. And so, when the Americans came in speaking English, you had more opportunities. Yes, well, this was the chance. Of course, um, the male population was gone, and all in the whole neighborhood, they either were in in a war prison camp or well, somewhere. Uh, and uh, the Americans, of course, needed some help. So with the age of seven and a half, I was lucky enough to be something like an interpreter. I showed them the way to the next tailor to get the uniforms mended, uh, little ways, means here and there. And um, I showed them, for instance, hidden ammunition. There was enough lying around. I made myself very important. You obviously remember those days well, George. Yes, it was uh, after being rather unimportant as a little boy, where you always get told uh, to shut up when grown-ups speak, uh, all of a sudden I was somebody. Were your parents alive? My uh, father was not alive anymore, my mother was. And was it particularly difficult here in Salzburg for a family like you, a middle-class family, during the war? Well, it depended very much. My father had... It sounds a little bit cynical now, had a so-called regular income as an officer of the German army. Um, as soon as the bomb raid started, it got more difficult. And then, of course, it depended very much uh, how you could accomplish your food situation. We lived near a farmhouse, so we had a chance to get something there. But I, I realized that people living in the cities um, had to change rings for eggs or carrying out an old fur coat to the farmers and trying to exchange that for a couple of pounds of meat and so on. So you were independent of the American army rations? We were more or less independent and uh, well, my mother took pride in taking away every chewing gum that she saw because she thought this was not the best influence. And now um, there, this, of course, would be impossible to ask a seven-and-a-half-year-old, but the Americans were here in occupation for ten years. Do you think generally that the Austrian population, population of Salzburg particularly, welcomed the Americans and liked them? Oh, um, in general, yes. Uh, it meant for the city, it meant good business. Let me take it up on the other end. When the Americans left, and especially the people of Vienna were very mad about that, to see that Salzburg um, did not celebrate at all. Um, they had no reason. The good business was going. 
uh, some of the, I guess, some of the hotel gastronomy, that field, um, they felt a, a severe cut down and uh, all the way across the line, I guess a dozen of girls had to leave the city because the business was over. How does a young Austrian woman feel who wasn't even born at the time? Gunther Barth is 26. Does she feel that any lesson has been learned? No, I would be very doubtful. i tell you one example. Um, if you go into the research of anti-Semitism, and there's a very good professor, or was a very good uh, female professor in Salzburg, Erika Weinzierl, who did a lot of anti-Semitism research, and it was one of my first lectures I heard when I came to university. And uh, I remember very good that she said, anti-Semitism, when it started in the 19th century, it started on the language level. For instance, there were slogans like, Juda Fiarecke, I don't know how to translate, perhaps um, the Jews should go to hell or mm-hmm. like that. And she said that she has the impression from what she's reading, or if I remember that right, that in those days it was only on the level of language and people were perhaps not yet prepared to really do that. But some generation later, they really exercised that. Now, I have very close contacts with American students and I'm so surprised because I've heard that four times that American students tell me what they do not understand among their countrymen, among their right-wing countrymen, or the women, is that they say, well, the best thing to do to solve all the problems we have with Nicaragua and in other parts of the world, let's nuke them. In other words, we have the same attitude amongst... I would say, today it's only on the language level. But who tells me that one human being who is under preconditions where he only has to press the red button and perhaps he is influenced by I don't know what. So tell me, what are the things to prevent this? You're saying, Gunther, that in spite of the 40 years that things haven't really changed. I wouldn't say things haven't changed. I would say human nature hasn't changed. Now that 40 years have passed, how does the XGI... Frank Davis feel about his return to Austria. I no longer have any uh, animosity uh, towards the um, Germans, and in fact, I have some very uh, close German friends uh, at home. And the forty years has certainly healed the uh, wounds that uh, and the way, the uh, better feeling that I had at that time. But uh, I've enjoyed the trip very much, and uh, I've made some. Uh, friends over here among the the, uh, Germans on several uh, previous uh, visits. And um, the German people today are very uh, friendly, and all of them that I have run across are seeming uh, extremely amiable towards the Americans that over here are traveling throughout uh, Europe. Do you feel that the celebration should take place, or do you think the whole of the World War II should be forgotten? Oh, no, I do not. I think that this is an excellent idea that the uh, celebrations should take place. I think it's good for the uh, first and second generations uh, to realize and to maybe understand 
what went on uh, 40 years ago. So I, I think this is healthy for the world and certainly for our friends here in Europe as well as uh, the Americans to uh, know more about history and to understand what actually uh, took place here uh, 40 years ago. Now, if you had to do it all over again, would you have joined the army or would you prefer to have stayed completely out of World War II? I, I feel very uh, strongly that uh, we, we as a country had no uh, choice but to join in World War II. Uh, there was no other way. And certainly our allies that, uh, that we had in Europe, uh, there was no doubt in my mind that we had to, had to help them and that we had to bring uh, peace and rest to the world again. Otherwise, if we had not come into the war at the time that we could have, uh, possibly uh, England would have fallen and it would have created many, many uh, complications uh, at a later uh, date. And how does the Austrian-born widow of the Irish-American General Collins feel now that 40 years has passed? I think it is perfectly silly to, to, to think bad of revenge for one or the other. That was a war fairly fought and over, and I don't think we should uh, spend too much time always saying this one won, that one did not win, and, and, and so on and so forth. Of course, the, the, the cruelties must, I think, uh, be da- dam- ba- damaged all our lives long. But on the other hand, I don't think we should always say this was over, that was over, this was better, that was not. I think it's so much over. And does George Steinitz feel that the events of 40 years ago should be still commemorated? Definitely should. People tend to forget a lot, and uh, I remember that... uh, in, this is something that disturbed me as a little boy, uh, knowing, um, having heard very early about the horrible things that had happened. I remember that in 46, 47, people started to say, uh, we'll have to forget about it, we have to draw a line, you can't always speak of the past. But otherwise, the, some people try to, to, to um, cut down the past at a very early stage. And I think we missed a lot in... Uh, how the German philosopher Mitchellich put it, work of mourning. We missed a lot. Um, on the other hand, I think for a very high price, we paid a lesson in history that was very healthy. And I think also other nations should have this experience of really once knowing that they have uh, committed awful crimes and have been guilty. And in this guilt... Do you think, really, that Austria should share in that guilt? Definitely. Uh, from the political side, uh, we got an easy out in our state treaty of uh, being declared the first victim of, uh, of Hitler. But we have to face that at least one-third was very much in favor of it, of Hitler taking over. Another third, maybe, was passive, and the, the third third, to speak so, was already in jail from the system before. So you think it's important, not only for people of my generation, your generation, but the younger generation, that it shouldn't be completely obliterated? It should be told, and it should be told in a way that people can understand. Uh, I think the issue is not to f- uh, declare people personally guilty now. That's impossible after so many years. It should have 
if if at all it uh, it took place or it should have taken place in the first 10 or 15 years after the war. It's not uh, the issue of uh, calling people guilty now personally, but as a whole as a as a whole country. I hate this expression of collective guilt, but to a certain extent you have to if you want to uh, learn your lesson then you have to take it collectively. Frau Buchmann puts the Austrian attitude into perspective with this story. I might tell you an anecdote which happened yes. uh, the day when the German soldiers came. Uh, I went with a girlfriend from school. She, uh, she came from a very Catholic family and naturally, you know, they hated Hitler from the beginning. And we went to see him when he came in, you know, he came into, into Salzburg. Yes. And then we, we ran off. We had, of course, no school that day. And we went up to the Mönchsberg, you know, this hill there. And we walked around, and there were lots of German soldiers, and we were young girls. And an elderly soldier, uh, apparently from Saxonia, from his accent, came up to us and asked about the view, what was this and that, you know. And then he said to us, well, girls, what do you think now? And we both looked at each other and naturally had no courage to say something in any way. And he said, I tell you, you Austrians will see what you got with this Hitler. It is evening now. The day is dying, the hills are in shadow, and a sparkle from the river is gone. I am standing here before the statue of Mozart, in just about the same place I stood 40 years ago. Then the strap biting into my shoulder was the strap of a captured German automatic weapon instead of a recording machine. I reached here by way of France, Alsace-Lorraine, the Siegfried Line, across the Rhine and the Danube, through the ruins of Heidelberg and Munich, then the liberation of Dachau and down into Austria. And here I stood up and looked at the statue of Mozart and wondered. Now, so much later, I take this opportunity to salute those of my fellow GIs who fell on the beaches of Normandy are on the long and bitter road that led to what we have celebrated today, victory in Europe. I salute all the forces, American and Allied, the living and the dead, the remembered and the forgotten. And with the exception of the SS, I pay my respects to those who wore the uniforms of the forces that opposed us. I salute you all.